that time of the week again. It's flat out RC time. Welcome back to the podcast where we talk all things radio control flight. We're talking radio control planes, helis and drones. My name is Andrew Sill coming to you from the land down under in Melbourne, Australia. And we've got another good episode for you. All of them are good. I really enjoy our guests, no matter where they are, who they are. It's always fun to have a chat about aeromodelling. Uh, and this week's guest, we have got a, uh, a gentleman by the name of Paul Richardson. Uh, he's been in the hobby a long time, it turns out. So we'll get to know a bit more about his aero modeling activity shortly. But before we do, let's take a look at what's been on my mind. What has been on my mind? Well, we're getting closer to one of the biggest events going around the 39th Mammoth Scale Fly-In at the Valley Radio Flyers Club, 17th to the 18th of September, large-scale model sort of kind of event. If you want to come along, you've got to bring a scale plane. Don't bring a trainer. Don't bring a sport jet. Don't bring like a stick because it's not a scale plane. You'll be asked to pack it up. Uh, but if you've got a scale plane and it's a monoplane, Minimum of 80 inch biplane, minimum of, oh my eyesight's not very good, 66 inch. Uh, bring it along on the 17th, 8th of September, the Valley Radio Flyers Clubs, a whole bunch of prizes you can win um, for entering, you know, going to draw to win, plus a, a, an engine, a UMS radial engine donated by OzStars model. And um, pilots who pre enter can also go in a draw to win a 30cc ugly stick. Uh, thanks to model flight. So the best thing to do at the moment is get onto the valleyradioflyers.com.au webpage. That's valley, V-A-L-L-E-Y, radioflyers.com, flyers, F-L-Y-E-R-S.com.au. And you'll see all the details there. And there's also a, a, a form that you can download and uh, send back to register. Because if you do pre-enter before the event, you save five bucks in your entries. It's $45 entry for pre-entry, 50 on the day. And if pre-entries, we're going to draw to win that uh, that 30cc stick. And, and by the way, that UMS radial, you can buy um, the raffle tickets to, to win that. It's $10 a ticket. So get on board with that one. I will be there. That is my intention. Hopefully the weather's going to be okay. But uh, that's out of our hands. So that's what's... I'm really looking forward to that event. It's a great event. Um, it's open to the spectators as well. So if you've got friends, family, anybody else that might be interested in aero modelling and they might be in the Shepparton area, then get on down to it. So that's something I'm looking forward to. Um, now, recently we saw the big 3D freestyle aerobatic event being held in France, the FXFC, which is a, a big sort of freestyle aerobatics event. And well done to Jace the Ace Ducier for taking out. And I saw Sasha Ciccone, good friend of the podcast and friend of mine, came second from Italy. Uh, and it's amazing the skill that these guys have got. Absolutely amazing. And that got me thinking about the role of competition in, in our in our hobby. And because there's always two schools of thought. I was a member of a club once that was anti-competition. They thought it ruined clubs. It was the worst thing known to man. But... They were very contradictory in their their mission statement where they wanted to foster people's development in the hobby as long as they didn't want to compete because that is bad. I I don't mind competition. Uh, personally, I've never entered a competition because it, it involves a certain time commitment that I just, you know, 
the way that m- my brain works, I'm all over the shop and it's hard for me to commit to something. I, I, but I do like the idea of all sorts of different competition, whether it be the scale comps. And we had you know, Melissa and David Law on last week's show talking about their activity at the Scale World Champs. Um, but I'd like, I love freestyle aerobatics. My, my favourite competition is actually freestyle aerobatics because it's, it's a bit like Australian Idol or one of those singing shows where it's a performance. You've got four minutes to music, so you've got to choreograph your, your routine to music, and it adds a different different sort of spice to the competition when you've got music playing. And so I'm a big fan of that. Uh, I also love the idea of glider events, uh, you know, the F5J kind of stuff where you've got 10-minute working times. Even this, um, what's, oh, I should get that, that new style of gliding event where you, you know, you're given a task like five minutes, depending on the weather conditions where, um, uh, ALES, uh, altitude limited electric soaring, is it? Something like that. Anyway, where you can run the motor to 120 meters or 120 feet or something like that. And you've got to shut it down. You can't start it up again. You've got to go to the working time and then, uh, land or spot landing a bit like an F5J mini F5J comp, Comps like that, if you've never experienced it, I experienced one. I shot a video. It's on the Flat Out RC YouTube channel where I visited the Varms Club where they were running that day. And I had a ball. I, I really liked that idea because it was quick turnaround. And there were you know, 10 people up in the air at the time or, you know, a fair few. I think it was around 10, 8 to 10 people in the air. And so you didn't have to sit around. You know, you go to some of these events and you sit around a lot. Everybody loves being there, though, because you have a bit of a chit-chat. But I like competition because it can help um, increase the standard of flying. And we need some people that know how to fly well to inspire other people and and raise that general level of of um, a standard of flying. And so whether it's scale events or gliding or um, control line, they all give people a goal to improve. And if that's your thing, I don't see anything wrong with it. Uh, I think with that club that I used to be a member of, they thought that you know people that competed thought they were better than everybody else and they didn't like that, but that just shows a whole bunch of insecurities or lack of information or, or whatever. But uh, you know, the fact that, say, someone like a David Law has committed so much time to competing at scale events means that he's got a wealth of knowledge that he can now share with other people. And so I think that's, that's a positive. And even when it comes to things like we've seen a resurgence in the IMAC community down here where I live and... And the people are just having a ball. They'll, 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 they're buzzing after a weekend event of, of competing. And, and when you think about it, they might, they might have done four flights you know, in, a, in a weekend. But it's the social aspect as well that people enjoy. So uh, my suggestion is if you're that way inclined and you want to improve your flying, go and join a competitive group. And whatever chosen facet of model flying you've chosen, get on board and give it a crack if, you, if you're that way inclined because uh, it will help you flying. It's time for my favourite part of the podcast, and we ha- have a guest. And this week's guest is Paul Richardson. Uh, Paul is a gentleman that I've met before at uh, the Wangaratta Jets event. Uh, know him as a, a pretty damn good pilot that uh, flies his planes like he stole them, but he didn't steal them. But interesting story, we'll go way back to his early start, starts in flying, and then uh, even, you know, he, he's worked over in the mines, over in Western Australia, and he uh, so has to fly in, fly out, and he talks a bit about 
his hobby around that and uh, even flying over there. So, again, this is just one of those guys, an everyday flyer that's got a great story to tell. We've all got a story to tell. So really enjoyed having a chat with Paul. So over to that chat with the one and only Paul Richardson. Well, this week we have another special guest, a man that I've met before at the Wang Jets event, spoken to him, don't know his story, but we're about to find out all together. Paul Richardson, thanks for joining me. Thanks, Andrew. Uh, Got to say, um, a little surprised, but also uh, quite humbled to uh, be chatting to you. Well, do you know what? I've said this many times before. Everyone's got a story to tell, and I love anybody's story because... You know, not often do we get that opportunity to sit down with other fellow aero modelers and, and find out their whole story in aero modeling. And uh, you know how many people say to me, oh, I don't know why you want me on the podcast. I've got nothing to say. And then an hour and a half later, they're still going. So um, <laughs> so there's, 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 there's plenty. There's plenty there. So, uh, Paul, where did your journey in aero modeling begin? That's the big question. Well, Andrew, I'm quite fortunate in, in the sense that I'm a second-generation aero modeler. Um, dad, dad's where our families where I sort of got involved from a young age. Um, and, and the, the follow on effect of that is, um, yeah, so he's a, um, commercial pilot that that's his career and, uh, his, his hobby and interest was modeling. And, um, yeah, that's where I started. Well, but I'm always surprised because, you know, I'm an aero modeler. I've got kids and my, my, both of my kids aren't interested at all. So you must have had some passion for it even at an early age. Yeah, yeah, and, and, and like you say, not not everyone's interested in it. I mean, I've got a brother that, you know, we both grew up at the same time and, you know, I, I was, you know, obsessed from a young age and my brother was, you know, not interested at all. So it's um, it's just one of those things that, you know, I took a shine to and it, it, it stuck. Yeah, yeah. And once it sticks, that's it. You can't get rid of it, can you? <laughs> no, it's a lifelong uh, passion, hobby, and interest. So it's um, yeah, it's a wonderful thing. Well, I was just not long ago, about half an hour ago, I went into my my garage to get the dog food out to feed the dog, where we keep the dog food, and there was my trailer. And next, and I've got a single car garage. So imagine having a trailer in there, it's full. So my models are in there, <laughs> but then there's model paraphernalia everywhere. Like I've built shelves so that I can put model stuff on. And then there's a box with a turbine engine in it. And I just, as I'm scooping dog food out into the dog bowl, I'm thinking, see, I spend a lot of money on model airplanes, haven't I? And then closed the door and kept on going. <laughs> but, but yeah, it does surprise, it surprises me. I'm always fascinated about we aero modelers and what we do. So, okay, so tell us about, you know, your first few flights, what models you got into early on and that kind of thing. Yeah, so starting from a fairly young age, about 10, 11, somewhere there, somewhere where I think I began. Um, yeah, for, fortunate enough to have basically like an old-timer model uh, second or third hand gifted to me from one of my dad's friends and that that's where my learning learning started and you know slowly but surely uh, progressed through that and then um yeah it was it was a little bit i was probably a bit early starting at that age for me at that point in time and i sort of had a maybe a year off or so um a little break there and then then came back to it um, a little bit more mature and, and um yeah ready to sort of progress it. Um, in my training schedule and uh being fortunate having a um a commercial pilot as a, as a dad he, he was also um you know very regimented and uh dare i say a bit strict on his tra- training and and learning uh of model flying as well okay and so uh, what models were you flying um 
Yeah. Basically, old timers to start with, yeah. and, and and then um, uh, two kernel gliders as well. That was basically, um, you know, th- things that I, I was able to build and construct uh, from an early age. Which, you know, this this predates you know the ARF era, and um, yeah, that, that was my beginning. Now, were they Aeroflight kits? No, I was just at the end of the Aeroflight kit and the beginning of, of Great Plains kits. Oh, okay, yeah, 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 yeah. So, so obviously you're a bit younger than me. You must be younger than me then, because I was sort of in the thick of the Aeroflight era. Yeah, yeah. I, they were definitely all around when, when I was flying. I, I mean, the kids I was going to school with were flying Aeroflight albatrosses and and and, and things of the like. And and Elstonwick Park was. Um, a, a fairly social place for us to gather and fly gliders at that point in time. So it's uh, so you must have lived down that way near me then. Yeah, I'm southeast suburbs of Melbourne. But, yeah, uh, so yeah. so we were close because Elsinwick Park was the the park that I first saw gliders and fell in love and and I took my albatross glider down there. You didn't happen to have an Aeroflight Aries. No, but I knew people that did. Oh, there was a kid there one day who had an Aeroflight Aries. It was pretty good, and he was on the bungee launch. Just they've ruined Elstonwick Park though. Now you can't really fly there, <laughs> and it's got put trees in there. Oh, it was. I used to love yeah. it going down to Elstonwick Park. Do you remember there used to be a BMX track down? Oh no, you're younger than me. There used to be a BMX. Yeah, no. Look, I, I remember rugby goals and, and um, yeah, BMX track, and yeah, a long time ago. Those were the days. Uh, okay, yeah. so th- so, so then after the after those sort of you know the gliders and the the old timers, did you have your sights set on any other models? Um, yeah, we progressed slowly into power models and, and, and four channel uh, semi aerobatic models. Um, Great Plains um, Sportster was one of the first models you know I sort of built that um, sort of become successful with, um, and, and you know becoming an early teenager, um, you know. Pattern ships and fast flying models, you know, had started to become, you know, on the scene, and, and I'd become interested in those. Um, and the the power club I was flying at at the time was the uh, the Marks Club over in Brooklyn. Oh yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And and I didn't know it at the time, but you know, some of the people out there that I was flying with, um, you know, were very good quality pilots and, and craftsmen. Yes, there were um, some really people good ones. like uh, Tony Driver, Tony Driver, was a yeah. FBA pat- pattern flyer. And, you know, at the time, I just thought he was just, you know, another one of our local flyers and everyone flies like this, you know. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so uh, high, high standard to, um, to to live up to. But, um, yeah, so start, started building more and more complex models, um, F3A models, aerobatic models, semi-scale models, um, you know, school holidays and, and things of the like. You know, a complete new, like either an F3A model would be built or, or a, uh, an extra 300 or something like that would be uh, knocked out in a school holiday period. Um, yeah, so that, that's uh, what I was interested in. And how often how often were you getting out flying? Was it something you did, tried to do every weekend or? We, we tried, um, uh, yeah, tried, tried to get out every weekend. Not always, because Melbourne weather is um, <laughs> finicky at the best of times. But um, le- learnt from an early age basically all weather operation was going to be um, necessary to pursue this hobby well, basically, either to have models that were suitable to operate in all weather and to have a skill set that could uh, do that as well. Yeah, that's true. I talked about that a few weeks ago with a guy by the name of Paul Marlin about getting out in different weather conditions. Actually, yeah, in uh, last week's episode as well, we talked about that. But um, it's something that, like living in Melbourne, as you said, with variable weather, 
if you don't get used to flying in the wind, then uh, you're not going to fly very often, are you? So, <laughs> no. Oh, and well. uh, so, something, again, it's, it's on that topic. You know, I mean, I learned from, um, you know, glider flying when I first started was basically a summer activity that was done in light weather and, and in midsummer. But uh, again, flying in the Varms Club, um, you know, soon learnt that, you know, you could fly, you know, a little one kilo model in midwinter uh, and thermal fly and, and be successful. You know, um, it's really quite amazing what you can do when you um, apply some effort and try. Well, that's interesting is this concept of the gliding in winter. Like I'm one of those guys that go, like I was thinking about it um, uh, during the week. Um, oh, we're getting closer to the warmer weather. We, you know, we're going to be into spring and then summer comes and that's gliding weather, <laughs> you know, like what do I want to fly <laughs> in summer? I want to fly the gliders because that's what you do in summer. But, um, you know, I've never attempted really to, 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 to thermal in, in winter, but no doubt there would be some thermals around. Yeah, most definitely. I mean, there, there's... Um, the Drilldry, uh competition that's held um, on the Queen's birthday weekend. I mean, that's a, a thermal flying competition. Uh, and there's the um, Aerotow event at uh, Cobram, the Cobram Queen's Cup weekend um, Aerotow. So uh, both facets of, of glider flying is, you know, it's a thermal flying basically event in midwinter. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it quite challenging, uh, but uh, also very rewarding to, uh, you know, be able to stay airborne for 30, 40 minutes and, you know, 10, 12 kilo uh, heavy scale glider in midwinter. Um, yeah, it's great fun. Yeah, no, no, definitely. I, I'm, I'm such a big fan of gliding. Just that challenge of, you know, it's like fishing and the challenge of the unknown and can I can I keep it up and you just got to concentrate. No, I just Very, like very much so. I, I find that um, the fishing analogy is actually a really good one in the sense that uh, although power flying and F3A and jet flying it, it is a, um, a unique skill and very demanding, but it, it's a bit like, I don't know, going out fishing in the bay. You know, you throw your line on, the weight goes to the bottom and that's that. Whereas thermal flying uh, is more like fly fishing. You know, it's, it's tactical and it's thinking mm. and it's being aware of your surrounds and reading the weather. Um, and it makes you a really good all-round pilot. Yeah, that is true. It's definitely true. And you got to, you got to, oh, like judging the speed of the model and the sink rates for landings and things like that is always the other sort of challenge I find. But, uh, but anyway, it makes you a better pilot. So, okay. So, so you went out to Mark's club and, uh, well, they're no longer at that field anymore. I think the club is still alive, but they just don't have a field because I think they got booted off. But, um, yeah. Okay. So then, um, you know, did you, did you continue to sort of power along flying models through your teenage years or did it, did it, back off a bit yeah i did it's um i sort of went up to about 18 19 somewhere around there um sort of yeah towards the end of that that sort of period i was flying f3a and sort of i guess imac style models before imac was a thing um and i built a um trim aircraft f86 saber that was sort of like pinnacle of what i achieved at that point in time um and and like you say with, with most of the guests you interview they either you know, girls or cars or other interests. Yes. Um, yeah, I was I was similar in, in that fact, um, but um, I, I went down the line of uh, full size aviation. Oh, okay. So I started uh, flying sailplanes and um, uh, ultralight at uh, Point Cook. So that uh, yeah, I had a sort of break off air modelling for a while, and I went and did that. Well, forgive you. Uh, that well, I do. <laughs> that's the other thing that the, the the people that get into full size flying. 
they always will park the model flying because that's sort of all consuming and, you know, especially if they're young and you're going through the ranks to, to get your licenses and things like that, you know. Um, you know, I saw it with um, Ido Segev that he would say, you want to come flying? He goes, oh, no, no, I've got to go full-size flying. I'm flying so-and-so and whatever. And that was his main priority and passion. But um, look, it's still aviation. And then, but it's interesting. I, I literally was just um, with a, a group of the guys from a flying club, some of the young guys, and um, and Brad Worm from up in Echuca. Brad has started to talk about this car that he's just bought. And I'm like, guys, we need to go up to Echuca and we need to have an intervention. Uh, he's now <laughs> he's now going to give up the hobby. He'll be back in 10 years after he gets married and he gets bored with the cars and realizes he wasted too much time. And he actually he actually wrote a message like, uh, ha-ha, I was just thinking about a lift kit for it and all this. I said, see, <laughs> we've got to get up there quickly. We're going to lose him. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we, we all go through that, that sort of thing. You know, we, we develop a side interest or a different path there for a little while. But, oh, um, yeah, yeah it's, um, it's, it's something that modelling, it always stays with you. It's uh it's an interesting thing. It does. And and I'm, I'm you know, up and down with my activity in aero modeling, besides this podcast, of course, which I enjoy doing. But, uh, but yeah, and I, but it's always there. It's always like it can't, I am amazed at how often it comes up in my day to day conversation, in my work and stuff. Like, you know, yeah. I'm doing some work with a company that's got a, a drone that's got a laser scanner on it for 3D imaging and all that kind of stuff. And, um, and we're talking about the drone, and I was. It came up. Oh yeah, I fly model airplanes, and yeah, I, I don't know why they chose that battery type for the drone and the flight line. You know, the flight time needs to be longer, and all this kind of stuff. And it just creeps into to conversations. Not that anybody really cares unless they fly model airplanes, but but I'll, <laughs> I'll just bore them to tears. Okay, so that, so so you dabbled in a bit of different things, and you know, obviously, you know, the pattern thing you did a bit as well, and that would have helped you flying. But then you go off and do the, some some full size aviation kind of stuff. How long did that go, and what led you back into the hobby? Um, well, to, to get into full size sort of aviation, unfortunately, I sold most of my models that I had to, to fund it basically. So um, flew full size for about five years on and off um, in that sort of time period. Um, being unfortunately being fairly expensive to do, um, you know, uh, run out of funds basically to a certain degree, and then um, yeah, model, modeling um, had progressed, um, you know, had made leaps and bounds sort of in that short time period, five to ten years that sort of I was away. Um, yeah, we, we'd moved away from thirty-six meg radios. There was two point four gigahertz uh, jet engines were just sort of coming on the scene. Um, yeah, there seemed to have been a big leap in technology over yeah, that period, and I went. It was. Actually, you know, this looks um, yeah, it looks very promising to sort of yeah, I might get back into this. Easier, <laughs> more reliable. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yes. No, no. It's, uh, well, the the other thing for me was travel time. I mean, flying gliders was trying to go to Benalla every weekend or every other mm. weekend, and yeah, it just wasn't particularly practical for me, unfortunately, at that that point in time in my life. That's true. You know, actually, the transport thing is a big issue. And even now with model flying, it was like, you know, we could go down to the local park at Elsinwick Park and have a fly and nobody, nobody cared too much. Um, but, you know, you can't do that nowadays. Of course, at Elsinwick Park because they put trees everywhere and I don't understand why. They should just left it all open and you put your bungee out and it all be great. But, um, but yeah, it's, it's, you know, we talk about a lot of getting kids into the hobby, but nowadays the parents have to drive the kids, you know, 40 minutes, yeah. half an hour, 50 minutes, whatever. And that's a, that's a big effort for, for the parents to be involved. That's why we see most of the kids that are involved, there's a parent that's involved as well, which uh, 
makes a lot of yeah, sense. Definitely. Look, uh, open space now is is at a premium, um, unfortunately, and you know the, the days of local clubs, um, yeah, there's a lot lot of pressure on land land space and, and availability. So yeah, local suburban clubs are um, yeah questionable how long they'll be around for unfortunately when you think about it the most suburban club of course the uh, down here in victoria is the doncaster aero modelers club which is a tiny field on like a football pitch kind of thing but uh but um you know we've got some pockets you know down into the southeast area down um c-mac and parks and then of course out to to pakenham appendarks and keylor a little bit not too bad but yeah i think you're right and that's what i like the strategy that the VMAA had was buying sort of fields, and yes, we're going to have to travel, but at least we're going to have something that's pretty stable. But um, where's where's your major club? Where are you doing all your flying? Most uh, of the time? P- P- at the moment, uh, is Pan Darts. Um, it it used to be um the VJAA and uh the Vams field, um, but unfortunately Vams is in the middle of relocating at the moment. So um, yeah, Pan Darts is the uh, the next best option for me. So. Uh, yeah, that's my, my home at the moment. Yeah, same with me. But I think um, it makes a lot of sense out at the Pendarksville because they own the field and uh, just, you know, I joined it because of stability, you know. That yeah. I yeah, wanted, yeah. I wanted uh, my terminology was I wanted to sink my roots into a club and be there for the rest of my life kind of thing. And if I was going to do that, which club is the most stable in the local area and it's going to be that club because they own it so there's a few others that aren't too bad you know on land like the parks yeah. club is out on uh melbourne waterland that is basically a swamp so then you can't build anything on it so flying field works but um oh yeah. well now okay so you go out and you do the full-size flying thing back into flying what did you get into i know you got into jets and we're going to talk a bit about jets but you know what was your go-to once you said okay there's all this new technology out there. What am I gonna What am I gonna get into? Um, yeah, well, re- rejoined the the Varms Club um, that was on High Street Road in Monterna, and started flying uh, fully molded uh, F3J gliders. That was where I sort of came back into. Yeah. Um, high performance sailplanes, uh, winch launched, and um, yeah, had a lot of fun doing that for, for quite some time. And that was where I started my way back in. Um, built some uh, molded. Uh, hand launch gliders myself. Uh, oh, really? I at, at the time I was working uh, for an engineering company and I had um, access to uh, some very high tech machinery and, and uh, milling machines and could machine my own molds. So uh, manufactured a couple of uh, hand launch gliders from scratch, um, which was a lot of fun. Um, yeah, so that, that's basically how I started back into it. Now it was interesting. You, you we were talking off air before, and you were talking about your career. And having some involvement with um, you know, full size aircraft, and you mentioned a couple of things that the company you're working for was doing some work on the Boeing seven eight seven and an F thirty five fighter. What what work were you doing? Because that would have been a bit of fun. Yeah, well, the um, the seven eight seven essentially Boeing aerospace structures were producing um, the the molded component, but to produce the molded component, they have to have a master. So a perfect shape mold uh, that produces all the parts. Um, so the company I was working for um, was, was contracted basically to Boeing um, to manufacture um, the master molds for um, uh, Boeing. So we made uh, ribs, uh, leading edge parts, um, ailerons, um, yeah, a whole heap of parts for the 787. So um, 
you know, if you're sitting on a 787 and look out the wing, um, yeah, they're, they're, those are my molds that I machined. Because everything's it's a carbon fiber plane, isn't it? Full carbon fiber plane, yeah. Yeah, it's amazing, really, when you think about it. Yeah. Be a lot of expense um, to go into building one of those. <laughs> Imagine how much epoxy yeah. they'd use. Be a lot of resin. Oh, the, the um, yeah, the the, re- the resin infusion machines that we we uh, made for for uh, infusing the molds. I mean, you know, they were you know in in the capacity of forty four liters uh, size drums of res of you know mixes that oh, were being really? mixed up to be infused into molds. So, Jeez, that's crazy, uh, isn't it? And what about the F thirty five? Um, basically, tail surfaces is what is produced in Australia. Um, so, yeah, that, that's um, components that were being uh, manufactured there. So, very interesting stuff. Um, you mentioned so. Okay, I'll, I'll park the next one that you told me about another story because we'll put it into context. So, you get back into the gliders, right? But I know you as a jet guy. So, what, what happened? So uh, a friend of mine uh, who, who's also a glider pilot from, from the Varms Club, uh, Theo Arkinavanis, um, who's still flying jets and a member of Panda, um, had, it was, had his first jet, um, and it was an F-22 Raptor uh, with a Jetcat 120. Um, and I was just like, wow, this, this is some pretty spectacular stuff. Um, and, and I was like, yeah, I've, I've got to have – this is where I want to go and what I want to do. Um, and at the time, um, you know, cost of a turbine engine was prohibitively expensive. Um, and, and I looked it up and I went, oh, okay, well, no, that's, that's not going to be a path that I can go down at that point in time. Um, just to purchase an engine and purchase an airframe that, um, wasn't going to work out. Uh, so being a, um, talented modeler, um, I, I said to myself, well, instead of purchasing an engine, I'll build my own engine. Yeah. Uh, so, yep, I went down the path and looked up how to do it and, yeah, made a start, basically. That's just crazy. Like, I've, I've heard that they're, they're not overly complex, but there must be a lot of machining to, 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 to build a, your own turbine. You're right in the sense that they're incredibly sim- uh, simple in, in their operation and what's inside them, but how to actually do it is, is really refined and complex. Uh, but I, I was just happened to be very fortunate to be in the right place at the right time, uh, working for a company where I had access to some very sophisticated machinery um, and, and that I could have full access to um, to produce whatever I wanted to in my spare time. Yeah, okay. And how did um, how did it turn out? Um, yeah, it, it had its ups and downs. <laughs> um, yeah, hell of a learning curve. Um, first engine I built, I spent basically 12 months working on every minute of my, my spare time. Um, and it was a complete and utter failure. <laughs> oh, really? Mainly because it was my own design and I, I just did what I thought was right. And it looked fantastic. It looked like, a, like any other jet engine, but it didn't really run. Uh, so bit, bit shattered about that. Decided to shelve that engine and put it to one side. Um, and I then built a, what's called basically a, a turbocharger jet engine. So you take a standard turbocharger off a car, um, and you build an external combustion chamber and you connect that to the turbocharger and you basically build a, a jet engine with an external combustion chamber. Really? The, 
the reasoning behind that is, is uh, studying basically combustion, how and why it worked, and learning from that, that engine number two, uh, I went back to engine number one, um, spent another six months, gutted the inside of it, started again, basically, new combustion chamber, new innards, and then, yeah, we had success with that. So, Have you still got that motor? Yeah. Still got that motor. Yeah. I've built about, I think, eight engines in total. Oh, really? Um, ranging from, um, say, 50-odd Newton's thrust up to a 200-kilo um, a thrust engine, which was going to be for uh, self-launching a uh, full-size glide. Uh, really? So, yeah. Some, some yeah, wild variants uh, in between. Um, but, yeah, the majority of them are actually very successful. Um, and, yeah, a lot of the guys at the... Um, Wayne Jet meets have all seen the run, and uh, yeah, it's been a lot of fun. And what about all the electronics and things like that? Are you just buying something off the shelf and using it, or are you you're making your own electronics? Oh, I, I, I wish. Um, yeah, basically some some very basic primitive electronics. Um, again, this was in the days of bordering on pre-FADEC um, start systems for engines, so full manual start for an engine. So uh, you control the starter motor, you control the fuel ramps, you control uh, the amount of gas at, at that point in time that, that, that you input for the start. And basically it's like rubbing your belly, scratching your head and, and you know, moving something on your transmitter all at the same time uh, just to get the engine to, to do a safe start and, and uh, get up to a stable RPM and, and be a, uh, stable for idle. Okay. We take it for granted now, don't we? We just, you know, flick a few switches and oh. Yeah, really- look, I, I, I look at some of these guys that, you know, have got, basically plug and play turbine models and I, they don't realize some of the pain some of us have been through to um, get get to that stage i mean they're almost as simple as an electric motor to operate these days yeah yeah definitely it's wonderful well, wonderful um wonderful advances in technology and, and um evolution of design of, of model turbines and they're, they're in a really um fabulous place now they are like they are phenomenal things um now the other thing I know you as is just one crazy flyer. Um, that uh, <laughs> it, it's always you know you have this epic jet, haven't you? Yeah, it's called uh, an epic. One model that a lot of people know, know me for is um, a civilian jet, which is all white, uh, T-tail, um, looks like basically a, a private jet, and, and that's that's what I fly at um, a lot of jet meets. And model's been around for quite a long time now. It's coming up on I think 11 years old somewhere around there um so yeah had it for a long time done a lot of flying with it. well and everyone's we all love that jet I, I love civilian jets <laughs> I love civilian planes I just literally did an Instagram post with a Cessna on it and I, I just love civilian planes and I, I think there should be more at flying fields but um but we all stand around watching you at, at Wangaratta and all that and looking at it and going oh that's a nice model and you and they say wait until you see Paul fly it I go, what does he do? He goes, you just watch. And then the terminology is always like, he flies it like he stole it kind of thing. And, you know, when you see this civilian jet coming in on a low inverted pass, you're going, okay, this guy's lost the plot. Like, what's he doing? Is it, you know, this plane's not supposed to do that. But, um, but yeah, you don't, you're not afraid. You must be very comfortable with that plane. Yeah, very comfortable for a couple of reasons. Like I say, a lot of hours on it. I think it's 300 plus flight flights. Oh, really? Um. But the other thing is, you know, I don't believe in having sort of hanger queens um, or anything like that. If you've got a model, you fly it and, and you fly it to combination of what suits the model 
uh, and, and your your abilities, basically. So that, that's what I try and demonstrate it as best I can. Yeah, yeah, it's interesting. I can, I can when I see jet um, people flying jets, I can tell the pilots that have flown Patton that uh, they they're very they're very neat. They they literally stand out, and I see think. Oh yeah, he's flying pattern. I can just tell by that roll that was pretty spot on. And here comes the knife edge pass, and they're pretty in control as well. And everything's just you know working well. I think there's a close tie up between pattern and jets. Okay, what other jets have you got or had over the um, years? Well, there's been a few. Um, uh, started with the boomerang Alain, um, and and that was powered by home built engines for in a couple of variants. Um, flew that for quite a few years. Um, yeah, when um, the VJAA uh, used to be at their home field was out at Clark Field um, in the western suburbs. Uh, did a lot of flying out there. That was very enjoyable with that model. Um, yeah, got got to go to Tamora, uh, jets over Monaco, and, and a whole heap of uh, different events around the country. Um, yeah, and that, that was sort of the beginning of my proper jet flying, I guess you'd say, with that model. Um, uh, Viper jet, um, the Epic. Compass, uh, Ultra Flash, yeah, a few others. It's um, yeah, there's, there's always something on the go or, or something new coming along. Yeah, uh, we never sit yeah. still, do we? Now, what what, what, <laughs> you, what do you currently got? You got the Epic and 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 the, the Compass, or yeah, uh, Compass Flash and the uh, the Epic is my current flying models. Um, soon to have uh, I purchased uh, David Law's. Um, Old uh, De Havilland Vampire, so that's um, oh, getting a, a refresh and, and, a, and a renew, and that will be um, shortly back out on the scene. So looking forward to flying that one. Yeah, that's um, I love a vampire in the air. They just look great. Again, an unusual subject that we don't see that much of. Mm. Uh, so good to see that. That'll be nice to see out flying again. Um, and an L twenty nine, so the forerunner to the L thirty nine. That's my next jet project. Um, Unfortunately, the, the kit's been nearly a two-year wait um, due due to COVID um, you know, shipping problems and delays and whatnot. So I um, yeah, it was ordered from Germany just before COVID, and I believe it's just arrived in Australia now. Oh, that's not good. My jet's on the order. <laughs> yeah. my, my replacement jet to my crash jet's coming, and I hope that, but it's coming from China, so it's going to be might be here. Better time than coming from Europe, but we'll wait and see. But okay, so you've had a few different jets uh, along the way, and then of course the gliders is another. It's still a passion of yours. What is the um, most the, definitely? Yeah. The, yeah. What does the hangar look like with the gliders? Yeah, a couple, couple of really big uh, scale gliders. So a, um, a seven meter span Ash twenty five, which is a um, you know big big scale glider, and a six point six meter. Uh, Antares, so that's a um, GPS competition racing glider. Oh yeah, um, that looks great. I'm having a look at your Facebook so, page um, now. Yeah, that one. Um, <laughs> yeah. And the the next glider is a third scale Arcus. So again, um, really big span, but that one is going to be set up as a self launching glider. So um, little motor inside, electric motor with a single blade propeller will pop up from the inside of the fuselage. And uh, yeah, so I'll be able to fly it down at my local club field. Uh, don't need a tug. Um, yeah, so that's just independent operation glider flying. It's the, um, the plan for that one. Okay, so when it comes to those big gliders, I was thinking about this during the week. Another another gliding thought. 
how powerful a tug do you need to get some of the you know six seven meter wingspan gliders up in the air? Well, actually, you don't need that much power because in the early days of aerotowing, I mean, I remember seeing you know large quarter scale gliders being towed up with you know sixty and ninety two strokes. So if it's done very carefully with two two good pilots, I mean, it can be done with, with quite low power. However, general operations these days, sixty uh, cc to one hundred cc um, is sort of the ideal tug. And that that covers you know a wide range of models that you can touch. Yeah. Okay. It's um it's 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 a really interesting and, and challenging thing to do because it's it's basically formation flying. Um, mm. So you know one follows the other in close station. Um, yeah. To, until the, the glider reaches high. That's true. Have you done the GPS racing thing? Not yet. Uh, um, setting up a model currently, that's the next glider is going to be set up for a GPS racing. So, uh, yeah, there's um, a couple of guys in Australia that uh, uh, have started uh, that. And, um, yeah, there's a bit of a following going. So, um, yeah, going to give that a crack. I think it's one of those things where there will be a following that will will emerge. Um, just give us a, a, a quick explanation as to what it is, because I think a lot of people aren't aware of what GPS glider racing is all about. Well, somewhat similar to, to full-size glider racing, uh, a triangular course is laid out. Um, you have a, a, a working time, 30-minute window, and, and basically you try to achieve as many laps around uh, this triangle um, as you can in that time period. Um, and how you work out where you are is you'll have like a tablet or a phone that you can look down to and you can see the position of your, your sailplane on the course. So you can um, see you approaching the turn point and fly around the turn point and, and off to the next heading. But what makes it so challenging is, uh, you know, do you stop and, and thermally go for more height, then make your way to the turn point, or do you just continue to the turn point and, and keep going? Yeah. Uh, yeah, a lot of skill and, um, uh, yeah, technique to, to, be, to do it really well. And they seem to use these really large scale gliders, don't they? You don't see sort of, you know. Yeah, the, other the, there's gl- a couple of categories now. Um, the, there's a sport class, so um, basically a, a smaller electric glider um, doesn't have to be scaled, um, and that's basically the entry level um, point for, for GPS racing because you the little data loggers, tiny little thing that can fit inside a huge large no problem. Um, so you can learn everything you need to learn with just a small electric glider to start with. Yeah. Okay, that makes it sort of uh, accessible to most. Yeah. Okay. I believe we're um, uh, Philip Knob from uh, Germany is coming out, I think, early next year and going to do some demonstration flights. Um, oh, really? Yeah, I think Mike O'Reilly is looking at um, his organising. Organising. Yeah. That'd be great. Yeah, an event for him. Yeah, so that'll be um, quite interesting to go and see. It's gonna, it's, it's sound, you know what to me? It's gonna be one of those things where it's just gonna grow. There's gonna be a following, and it'll be one of those things, you know, that might be amongst the scale glider community that go, "Hey, this GPS racing thing, you should come and have a look. It's unreal. We had so much fun." And uh, blah, blah, blah. somebody goes and has a look and goes, "Oh, gee, I'm gonna get involved in that." And before you know it, mates tell mates, word of mouth starts spreading, and before you know it, you have got twenty people that turn up to a GPS racing event. So, um, yeah, definitely. I mean, um. 
generally speaking, Aerato events are sort of basically a fun fly event. There's no sort of competition to um, it, it adds an element of something else you can do with your model and a, um, a meaningful task to go and try and achieve and improve your skills. So it's um, from that point of view, it's quite good. Uh, what are the flights like with the big gliders? How long are you getting? Oh, it's, um, yeah, it, it ranges from, from medium to long. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, my, my, my task that I, that I set myself for uh, what a, on, a, on a normal Aerato event is Aerato to about two to 300 metres from behind the tug, uh, re- release at that point, uh, climb to 1,000 metres at a field where you've got high clearance for that. Yeah. Um, climb up to 1,000 metres, stay airborne for an hour. Um, once you've achieved your hour goal, usually come down, do some high-speed beat-ups and passes, yeah. some aerobatics, and then uh, land and, and have a rest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Man, that's good to get back on a flight. Yeah. Oh, it's quite common. Do you have tele- do you have tele- telemetry? Uh, some telemetry, not not a great deal, but yeah, some. So you know your battery levels and all that kind of stuff, so you're not falling short. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So how much battery would you use in in an hour? Are you using much or Su- surprisingly little? Because um, the, the although the models carry lots of servos, you know, big span wings, you know, up to 10, 12 servos in the wing, they're not you know, huge deflection and huge load on the servos. So it tends to be just their static current draw is what the consumption rate is. Yeah, okay. Makes sense. But hell of a lot of fun. Oh, yeah, yeah. The um, the, the Aerato events, not not only are, are they great fun to go and fly at, but for, from a social point of view, I mean, you know, they're, they're usually a late start, you know, mid, mid to late morning, fly, fly to late afternoon. And then from late afternoon onwards, it's, you know, fun flying, you know, free flight control line, um, night flyers, anything you can think of and just, you know, a great fun social event to uh, go and attend. Oh, I keep on looking at these scale gliders now. I've got to stop looking at them. <laughs> I, I just love the look of yeah. I love the look of scale gliders. I'm I'm that I'm a I'm a single seater fan, you know, like a single seat race car, a single seat jet, yep. a single seat like uh, you know, full size glider. And so it just, to me, that is just, and I, I went for a fly at Benalla in a full-size thing because I thought, is this something that I could get into? Because, you know, I need another hobby pool because, you know, I just don't have enough in between <laughs> everything that I'm doing. But, um, but and and again, it was that that idea of that single-seater and, you know, that vivid imagination that we aero modelers have. Imagine what it was like sitting in a glider like that with its bubble canopy and the view that you'd get in this tight cockpit single-seater arrangement. And it's the same with the models. I just love the the lines of a of a scale of a scale glider. More of a modern. Some of the older style stuff is probably not my thing. I can appreciate them, but if I had to buy one, I'd buy an ASW or something like that. Um, and a friend of mine has one, and I have the option to buy it. <laughs> and I, I'm just waiting. Um, <laughs> Again, uh, come to an event. Have a look. Um, no, no, that's a, then... that's a bad thing because then I'll do it. <laughs> I, what I need to do is do it and just turn up to the event because then it's just a given. I'll turn up to the event and go, oh, I really need to get one of those scale gliders. But it's literally the last bastion of category that I really need is a scale glider. The thing is I'd only – it's a bit like my jet. My jet will be used at jet events, VJA events, Wang jets, stuff like that. And then a scale glider will literally just be for to go to a scale glider event. That would that'd be it. Yeah. I'm, you know – 
if I go for an average weekend fly, I'm going to take an aerobatic model and I'm going to try to brush up my skills and do all that kind of stuff. But um, which there's nothing wrong in having a scale glider to go to a scale glider event, really, as far as I'm concerned. Because there's a few, like we've got, of course, Drillery is the big one, but then we've got um, you know, Cobram. They get up there, don't they? Is it Cobram where they they have yep. an event? Cup weekend up in November in Cobram's a really big weekend of. Uh, uh, scale glider flying and um, yeah, then there's camp at Camperdown, camp um, yeah, slope soaring and yeah, there's all sorts of events on all the time. The South Australians, the, the Mike O'Reilly group over there and um, do a great job. They've got um, uh, a number of different yeah, the events. Yeah, well. I believe it is. Yeah, yeah, it's, um, yeah. It's, um, yeah, ne- never short of an event to go to or um, yeah, somewhere to fly or something to do. It's, um, yeah, you're, you're constantly on on the run. Everybody that I know that's gone to one of those scaled glider events has just come back saying that was just unreal. Keith Quigg did it. I had him on the podcast and he was saying, oh, that was just unreal. I had such a good time. Um, and he's got a, yep, he's yeah. got a big one. Yeah, some time on one of my gliders up there. Flying oh, through see? <laughs> You're like a drug dealer. Have a taste of this. It's pretty good. It'll make you feel good. Next minute, oh, I need another one. <laughs> One's not enough. But I always look at the size of them. And this is the thing is like if I get a scale glider, I probably won't get – I might get a four-meter or something like that. It might be a bit more manageable because I've, I've just got no space. It's a good, good place to start four-meter glider. Um, yeah. What I would recommend. I, I've got a short attention span, but um, I've got an F5J glider which I launched into the back of my head, but um, that is fixed. Um, <laughs> I do like to tell people the same stories about how I launched a glider in the back of my head. Um, learned from that. Um, Keith Quigg laughed at me. Um, by the way, when I did that, I'm not alone. So he's very supportive. So I'd like to thank the president of the Pakenham uh, District Aero Models Club, whatever the name is. I can never get. I just know it's pen ducks. Um, okay. Uh, so yeah, you, you you flew some full size stuff. Um, do you think that the full size gliding helped your model gliding? I would go as far as saying full size flying in general helps helps model flying. Uh, it, it enables you to look at your model flying from a different perspective, uh, and you start to understand some of the little finer, subtle details. And, and and yeah, some of them, some of the details are definitely transferable to, to modeling for sure. Yeah, yeah. What well, was your yeah, longest yeah, flight in a full size glider? Uh, three hours, something. I can't remember it. I have to look it up. Um, Gee, I'd have to go to the toilet. Yeah. I just don't understand the toilet situation. Well, I've researched the toilet <laughs> situation, but I have yeah, the weakest. Yeah, interesting one. I have the weakest bladder known to man. Like. I went to table tennis, played table tennis last night, and I was talking to some of the people I play with, and I reckon I'd gone to the. I, I think oh, I've got a prostate problem. I must. It's just it's terrible. <laughs> Today wasn't too bad actually, but I just I, I just think okay, uh, three hours, I'll be dehydrated because I wouldn't have had anything to drink just in case I had to go to the toilet. But I, I know there's mechanisms that you can use for males to uh, <laughs> relieve themselves yeah. mid flight. <laughs> Indeed, indeed. Yeah, these people do but, these um, long distance flights. I'm like, oh, gee. Would he pack a lunch yeah, with you as well? To... Yeah, you, you can take some, uh, small things to eat with you if, if you really want. I mean, some some people have done, you know, 11 hours airborne. So, oh. it's, um, yeah, it's uh, challenging to say the least. Yeah, no, that's, that's hard going. Uh, okay, got anything on the build uh, bench? You've got a few things here, uh, like. you got the gliders. Yeah, and... there's about... About four things on the go at once at the moment, which is a lot more than what I'd normally have. Uh, but uh, yeah, currently working on a glider tug, uh, oh, yeah? which is uh, it's 
a French aeroplane called a Bidule. So it's a um, basically a low-wing aircraft with twin tails. Um, it was going to be set up for a 120cc size engine, but uh, chosen a slightly different path on this one. It's um, going electric, so that'll be a um, an interesting. Uh, oh, electric! Basically. Really? So it's going to be an electric glider tug at the, the 120cc size. Really? Yeah, be interesting to see how it uh, turns out and works out. I'm just, I've just typed it. It's B I D U L E. Yes. And it's got a twin tail at the back. Yeah, twin tail. It's quite an unusual looking airframe. Yes. Um, but um, yeah, it's it's one of those ones you know only a mother could love. Um, but it's it's for a purpose that airframe. It's a, its sole purpose is, is for towing. Um, and, and that's it has, it's it's not based on a full size model though. No, no, it's a it's a it's I, I believe it's derived from a, a, a military drone originally, um, but it's been converted basically to model purposes. Yeah. Okay. And so and you know what it looks like it'd be a good tug. Yeah. Yeah. Can 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 uh, you know handle ridiculously large size uh, engine bolted into it uh, if you want. Um, yeah, it can fly on anything, I think, from 60cc to about 130, 140cc engine if, if you really want. Um, okay. But, yeah, capable of towing 25 kilo sort of plus weight glider. See, that'd be good. Actually, I'm yeah. looking at... I'm looking it's, a, at... it's something that, uh, uh, you know, iMac guys, you know, if, if, if iMac guys are ever bored with their, with their airframes and, you know, with, with like a side interest, come to an Aerotow event. They'd be um, more, more than welcomed and... Uh, yeah, easily trained up for, for tug pilot duties if, if they're interested. You know what? But that's the other... Oh, I've mentioned this before. I keep on repeating myself, but I love the idea of being a glider tug pilot. It's just... It's pra- it's functional, and, um, you know, it's a job that you've got to do kind of thing, And but you've got to get up and you've got to get down. And I, I just like... I just like the idea of it. There's something about it that I sort of like this romantic side to it, too, and I think... Oh, that'd be that'd be cool, you know. And I always thought, you know, I saw once this big stick that was set up for um for glider tug. I said that'd be perfect. Just something like that would be would be a great glider tug. But um, yeah, no, it's um, um yeah, it's got actually some nice, really nice some um, versions of that. Actually, some big ones. What's the wingspan on it? Yeah. Is, is it three meters? Or uh, something? three meter. Yeah. yeah. I, I think they do an, an even bigger version than that. That's um the one seventy to. 220 cc size, massive, truly giant stuff. But, is it an ARF? Uh, yeah, Eric. Sorry, it it is an ARF. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. Air it's, it's You'd be surprised that there, there's something for everyone there. You know, you, you don't have to be a, a glider pilot to go to an Air event. Mm. Uh, yeah, there's um, an interest for all. Basically. Well, there you go. I've got to stop looking at this stupid internet. It's bad for me. <laughs> I look at it and then I fall in love with things and then it gets stuck in my head and then I have to scratch that itch. No, I won't. I will move on and forget about scale gliders now. <laughs> uh, okay, I'll put a little question in here, which would be interesting to see what your, your response is to it. Like you've been around the scene for a long time. You know, what are some of your tips that you would give the average model plane pilot, stuff that you've sort of learnt along the way? Question without notice, I know. No, 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 that's fine. It's um, well, having listened to a few of your, your podcasts, Andrew, um, an interesting thing that that keeps coming up, um, and it's basically currency. And there's a common thread of people sort of say, you know, you can't fly too much, and and I wholeheartedly 
totally agree with it and support it. And I think, yeah, that's primary number one. Uh, but I'll go as far as saying, um, on top of that, uh, a little bit of theoretical knowledge, uh, aerodynamics knowledge, um, and, and theory on, on um, yeah, relevant aerodynamics to, to model flying, basically. Um, and there's real world applications from that that, that you can um, utilize. Yeah, okay. So, okay. Where would I go to, to, to access information about that kind of stuff? Like, how do I become um, knowledge about, you know, aerodynamics, things like that? Okay, yeah, Google. there's a couple of really good books by Martin Simons um, that oh, they're, yes. they're worth a read. A um, little bit painful to get through. Um, but, again, there's YouTube's probably the best place. Um, practical aerodynamics, um, you, you can look it up, and um, it goes a long way. Uh, understanding what your model's doing and why, um, yeah, and, and that enables you to, to trim it and to set it up and, and to get it to fly a whole lot better than, than where it's currently at. It was interesting um, at the recent Festival of Aero Modeling when I interviewed the guys from there and um, Martin Pickering was flying Aaron Gahl's jet or something like that. And, and Aaron wasn't happy with the way the jet was flying. And Martin went to town in going, no, I can fix this. I know exactly what's wrong with this model and how to fix it. And so they're pulling tanks out and moving things around and all that kind of stuff, even down to trying to find lighter wheels for it. So um, I think there's certain pilots that are very, very in touch with the model and the aerodynamics and the balance and all this kind of stuff that just get that touch to know exactly what to do. And after Martin played around with Aaron's plane, it was like a different model. And Aaron goes, oh, that's just chalk and cheese now. But I think most of us go, oh, we just put up with something and off we go. And we don't. Yeah, that's again, that's probably something I learned from glider flying uh, and my early days of model flying. I mean, early days of model flying, you used to test fly a model, and as long as it's sort of trimmed out sort of straight and level, that was all the trimming you'd ever do to it. Um, you know, you, you wouldn't think about sort of moving the CG or, or changing incidents or, or, you know, modifying things to make it better. There was just, you know, it flew, that's good enough, we'll just leave it there. Um, yeah, it wasn't till I sort of start to get into uh, performance model glider flying, basically, and, and refined setups and tuning um, that, you know, it opened a whole other world that you looked at and you said, okay, well, it flies like this, but, you know, can we make it fly better? And what what steps do we have to take to get it to fly a whole lot better? Yeah, well, the Martin uh, Simons book is uh, it's still available, some new, some second hand. Actually, Booktopia, the online store, been to Booktopia's warehouse. Yep. Uh, they've got a copy of it, Model Aircraft Aerodynamic by Martin Simons, published twenty fourth of August. He's done. Um, this is the fifth edition, so there's multiple different editions. Only costs, you know, for those in Australia, thirty seven dollars seventy five, um, and yeah, he was a renowned, you know, Australian guy that really knew his stuff, didn't he? And he designed a number of gliders as well. I think I've got one, a mini martini that yes, Mike O'Reilly. That's one of my yeah, 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 yeah. That's yeah. There was a martini, sure. and then there's a mini martini, which is a two meter wingspan. And I've got the two meter wingspan sitting in a box. If anyone wants to build, <laughs> if anyone wants to finish it off for me, it'd be greatly appreciated because. <laughs> I will botch it up with my fat fingers. <laughs> uh, actually, I had a guy that was going to build it for me and, and he had it for about two years and didn't touch it and then just gave everything back to me and said, here, I can't do it. <laughs> you, you do it. 
Uh, so that might be a retirement a retirement project. I'll have the oldest Martin Simons planes going around, but, but that, that would be brand new. Um, there is a resurgence in nostalgia modelling at the moment with, with like vintage pattern models and control yes. line and all, all sorts of things making a comeback of late. It's, it's quite interesting. You know, as I think as we get older, we reminisce about the good old days. I have, <laughs> you know, you when you say the word Elswick Park, these very clear pictures come into my mind of talking to these two guys who had these big, what I thought were massive gliders that were bungee launching and they were flying around, and one of them was yellow and the other one was orange, and and you know. It's like one of the one of the early models that I built was a I built a Aeroflight Albatross and I built an Aeroflight Ares, and um, earlier in the year I got uh, a kit a laser cut kit of the Ares that um, Peter Goff at Scale Aero Products was was cutting, and not because I'm in a rush to build the model, it's because it's nostalgic that I'm like, and I've still got that Ares there and I could you know I could easily get that flying again, um, it's sort yeah. of still in one piece but. That nostalgia of it's it's like historic car racing is just booming, absolutely booming, and um, you know I love a Southern Sailplanes ricochet. I don't care what anybody yeah. says. Yes, I know they're an older thing; they're heavier than the modern gliders and all that. But I love the look of a of a Southern Sailplanes ricochet fuselage. It looks better yeah, than a yeah. modern composite fuselage, as far as I'm concerned. You know, yeah, um, it's uh, funny you mentioned that. It's um, it's like I've recently acquired a um, a Truman aircraft Spectre, which is an old Dr. Tan kit. Um, and, and you know, by today's standards, it's, it's probably nothing special. But for, for me, as a teenager, seeing seeing one of those turn up at the field was like seeing the space shuttle turn up at the field. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. It was, uh, you know, just just unbelievable, and you know, new technology, and you know, it's just yeah, wow, wow factor at the time. That's true, and well, I've got. I ended up getting a ricochet for eighty dollars. It cost me. Look, it, it's <laughs> it's got more than hanger rash. It's actually the colours changed. It was sitting in this dusty thing, but I don't care. And I I brought it home and I put the wings on it, and I and I'm saying to my wife, "Have a look at this model. Isn't the best looking model?" And they're all staring at me, going, "Nah, what is it?" And I said, "Take a photo of it. Take a photo of me with it. <laughs> I own a ricochet." It's not in good condition, but it's there. It's all there, kind of. <laughs> but anyway, um, yeah, great, great model. Um, okay, go back to my notes here. Um, you've given us a few tips. Now, what's interesting now is, you know, I tried to get you on a number of weeks back to come onto the podcast, but you're away. And it turns out that you're a, you work over in, in the mines, is it? Over in yeah, Western Australia? Yeah, I work over in the mines, uh, Western Australia. So... Yeah, about 10 years ago, I sort of pack, packed up my uh, Mel- Melbourne life, headed over to Western Australia and, and started working over there. Uh, originally, I moved um, up to Port Hedland and I was res- residential up there. Um, yep, packed a few models and boxes, took those with me. Um, yeah, went, went up to Western Australia and um, yeah, as time's moved on, I sort of managed to change roster to a, a fly-in, fly-out roster. So um yeah, you don't see me that often at the field on the weekend, but um, yeah, during the week is uh, usually when I'm out and about flying. Yeah. Now, so you don't have any models over there you can fly whilst you're over there, or you're just too busy working? Unfortunately, not anymore. I've brought them all back. Um, originally, the um, the Epic was built over there, and uh, I flew it out of what I think is the the most remote model strip in Australia. What's um, that? Which was. 
two hours east of Marble Bar, so basically in the middle of nowhere. Um, there's an abandoned World War II airstrip. Oh, really? Um, which is, um, yeah, utilised by a handful of crazy aeromodelers uh, up in the northwest of Western Australia. Really? That's yep. quite, oh, um, now I'm Now I'm looking for it. Is it a secret spot? Um, you can look up a place called Corona Downs um, and the World War II airstrip at Corona Downs. And, and you'll realise just how remote that is. <laughs> I'm looking now. I'm typing away. Oh, no. Corona. How are we spelling Corona? Uh, not not the virus way. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I'll find it. I'll find it somewhere. Um, that's amazing. And what's the strip? Is it just a dirt strip? It's an American um, crushed coral uh, rock strip. So it's, it's grey white looking. It's um, in... Late 40s, Americans um, established a base there uh, and B-24 Liberators uh, operated out of there. Really? It's a secret location that the uh, the Japanese couldn't find. Gee, that is... Quite, quite a unique place. How did they build it? Gee. Painfully, slowly and, uh, yeah. Oh, there uh, it is. Found it. Corona is spelled C-O-R-U-N-N-A Downs, people. C-O-R-U-N-N-A Downs. I just did a, I did a search on American Airstrip in, in WA and Wikipedia has picked it up. Um, Corona Downs Airfield secret air, uh, was a secret Royal Australian Air Force base at Corona Downs, 40 kilometres south of Marble Bar in the Pilbara region. In 1942, the RAF built a secret air base on Corona Downs Station adjacent to the 1891 homestead. Secret air base. Yep, exactly right. B-24 Liberators, long-range heavy bombers were there. Um, that is great. That is great. So, so, yeah, to give people an idea of the size of that, that strip out there, it's um, about the same size as the Wangaratta uh, runway yeah. and, and two cross, cross strips that size. Really? And so do, do full-size planes ever fly out of there or not? Um, like maybe once a year you might get one aeroplane visit just out of curiosity. <laughs> uh, yeah, there's not, there's not much out there. Um, has it held up okay? Is yeah, it's um, strangely it was maintained by the Pilbara Council out there at one stage as a tourist attraction. Um, so they used to grade it and look after it, which is perfect for model flying. Um, God knows why, why people would want to drive all the way out there just to look at a runway, but some people do, I guess. I'm looking at it now. It's actually on It's on Google Google Maps. You can find it. Yeah, there is a homestead there kind of thing. Right yeah. at the end of one of the one, runways. <laughs> it's great. <laughs> <laughs> just it's come a, in and buzz the it, house. We, um, yeah, it's... The, the location also has has its unique problems in the sense that, uh, you know, Marble Bar is a, a, a fairly warm place. Yeah. So we'd head out. You'd start your flying day model-wise at about 5 a.m. in the morning. Oh, really? Um, because of the heat. Uh, you know, by 8, 9 o'clock in the morning, you'd be over 40 degrees easily at that point in time. There's two There's two strips there in Corona Downs. Yeah, I think there's one on the station. Yes. And then there's... One that's the the abandoned runway or the old oh, okay yeah, yeah I can see it yeah that's the one that doesn't have the homestead near it that's amazing history isn't it when you think about it yeah unique and and the strangest thing is um, 
you know, I ran into three other jet modelers, um, you know, in the Northwest. And, you know, I, I thought I'd be the only modeler, you know, crazy enough and silly enough to be flying a model jet up in the Pilbara. Yeah. But, yeah, lo and behold, there's at least three other guys, maybe four other guys, um, you know, quite active modelers up in the region. So you'd be surprised at who you run into in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, okay. I didn't realise that that was going on. Port, well, Port Hedland has had a, like that was been pumping with the mining industry up there. Didn't the property prices go through the roof yeah. at one point in time? In the mining boom? Yeah, you, you used to pay like like $1.3 to $1.5 million for a little fibro shack at one stage. Oh, really? What's it got down uh, to now? Yeah, it got, got quite, yeah, they were about 300000 for the same, same price. <laughs> same property. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, not all property yeah. goes up in value. <laughs> It's uh, very, very true, uh, you know, mining towns boom and bust, you know. Some people, uh, yeah, boomed for them and some people went bust. So, uh, yeah, extremes of both ends. Do you think you'll keep on doing that for a while or, you know, will you take uh, some models up? For the time being, you? I actually quite enjoy it. Yeah. No, it's um, for the time being, I, I, I quite like having, um, you know, eight days off in Melbourne um, and having my free time in Melbourne and, you know, not being restricted to only flight, you know, uh, weekends and, and as my time off. So it's, it works quite well for me at the moment, actually. I do like, because uh, I run my own business, I never really have time off. So, you know, once I finish this podcast, I've got to go back to my office because I get some camera gear because I can do a video shoot in the morning and I've got to have my gear ready. And, and, you know, there's always something on my mind. And the idea of, okay, I've got eight days off and guess what? I'm in a different state. I can't do any work. Like, you know, I like that idea because your eight days off is your eight days off. It's like my brother that's a pilot. Yeah. You know, he can't work unless he's sitting in a cockpit or an aeroplane. So his day off yeah, means yeah. he has nothing to think about or do because it's his day off. I'm on a weekend going, maybe I should do some work to catch up on a few things. You know, I go on holidays <laughs> and I have my laptop and I'm checking my email every day. I just can't relax. But. Uh. Oh, well, these are things that we need to do. Yeah, it's, it's nice that there's a clear defined finish and start and finish to, to when work is. Yeah. Well, that, that'll give, well, that idea of the eight days off also gives you good time to, to enjoy the hobby and, and, you know, build some of these models. What's your building area like? Because it must be pretty big because you've got some pretty big gliders and stuff. Um, actually, it's, it's only a single-car garage, um, but it, it's no car and no trailer inside the single-car garage. That's... Uh, but uh, mezzanine floors, and it's it's fairly well set up. I spent quite a bit of time on, on this house and um, setting up so it'd be what I call the ideal workshop, as, as, as close as I could get to it. So you're one of those lucky people that can build something, uh, a house, and keep in mind their hobbies, so they're building something that could cater for their hobbies. Uh, very much so. Um, and, and there is also a spare bedroom inside the house, which is sort of um, the indoor building room, I call it. Oh. <laughs> so quite fortunate in the, in, in the space and area. I can't wait for my kids to leave home so I can get a room <laughs> to myself. It's going to be awesome. Uh, do you reckon yeah. my, you know, my son's 15, my eldest is 15, do you reckon I can kick him out now? It'll be handy. Uh, you can try. Just yeah. probably get arrested for that sort of stuff these days. <laughs> oh, I don't know. I'll, I'll give it a crack. So, I'll report back to you and tell you yeah. how it all went. But, 
I, I remember I got an ultimatum. I think it was 22 I had to leave by, and, and otherwise I was going to get thrown out. <laughs> oh, see, no, nah, I was a good European family, and they'd say, why do you want to go anywhere? Stay here. I went, okay, if you're paying, I'll stay here. So, so it was, I, I can't imagine my, my son leaving anytime soon. I, I think I'll probably leave before he does. Um, but, <laughs> but yeah, no, he's a, he's a challenge. But, um, okay, well, we're up to that final question, the question that everybody wants to know the answer to, the question that I, I actually enjoy asking it because I get a lot of different responses and some are pretty funny. Um, but what has been your all-time favourite model? Yeah, great question and such a hard question to answer. And do you know what's um, funny? You're a listener to the podcast, so you know that this question comes up, but nobody's ever really thought about it. I, I have. I do not. I know what mine is, but I won't tell you. But anyway, the problem being is I've, I've had favourites over over a long period of time, and for different reasons in different areas. Uh, in the sense that you know, I, I sort of fly a bit of everything these days, ranging from pre-flight and control line. Uh, all, all the way up to turbine jets and, and pretty much everything in between. So to narrow it down to, to one, um, very challenging. Cut to um, the chase. It's got to be one. It can't be that hard. Yeah, uh, I've I thought about it and it's, um, I, I'll go with a, a model called, uh, a thing called a Dragon Lady. Uh, if you remember back to oh, I I 90s, somewhere around there. Let me have a look. Um, it was a, a quick build kit. Uh, from Model Tech, uh, yes, think, uh, model engines brought them in. Yes, uh, I know the one. It's it's a, like a sport kind of model, low wing sport model. Yeah, um, yeah. Reason why I liked it, I think I had it when I was about fifteen, somewhere around there. Uh, ridiculously overpowered with it, with a huge Super Tiger two thousand five hundred in it. Yeah, um, it was kind of this wildly overpowered, great crazy model. Um, and it was sort of just at the turning point, I guess you'd say, in my flying career, where I could sort of fly it and go, hey, I've got this. And, and you know, it's wild and it's all over the sky, but I can put it exactly where I want. And, um, yeah, I, I sort of started to realise that, yeah, hey, I, this is this is actually a lot of fun and, and I'm sort of good at this. And, yeah, a lot of, lot of great experiences with that model. Do you know, I, um, I've seen those models and you look at that plane and you go, that's going to fly nicely, I can just tell. It's got all the ingredients for a nice flying sport model. Big wing on it. Uh, yeah. yeah, well, it, when they're powered appropriately, um, they are. My one in particular was uh, way overbuilt and, and heavy, um, but you'd call it a really good jet trainer these days, I guess you'd say. <laughs> a jet trainer. <laughs> the Dragon Lady jet yeah. trainer with a propeller on the front. <laughs> yeah, r really high cuts down speed. Um yeah, you know, it'd bite you if you did something wrong, um, but you know, very rewarding to be able to operate it and fly it. And there's a, I'm looking at your Facebook page, and it looks like there's a kit build or a scratch build or something that you built, um, that looks a bit like that Dragon Lady. Back in 2020. Um, blue. yeah, um, it's a blue is model. it a black fuselage? Uh, blue. Blue model. Um, blue and white. Yes. Is that yours or somebody else's? A uh, little control line project. Uh, ah, that's what it is. Yeah, little, little control line, uh, red, white, and blue color scheme. Yeah, little control line project that I built. Um, yeah, a lot of fun. Again, that's um, something for um, basically the end of Aerotow events. Uh, yeah, sort of <laughs> evening flying and laughs, giggles, and everything in between. 
See, that's great that you um. Oh, I need something for the Aerotog events. Something else. Oh, I'll build a control line plane. More stuff. <laughs> more stuff and more stuff. <laughs> I'd take a discus launch glider or something and throw that up. Yep, definitely. It's um usually the start of an Aerotog event is um discus launch and either free flight gliders or um you know electric gliders. And then as the, the sort of the morning sort of kicks off and then the thermals start to um, appear, yeah, the, uh, the tugs and the big gliders come out. Yeah, okay. I've got to stop thinking about scale gliders now. <laughs> and, pl- and the worst thing is my friend wants to sell me one and I've got the option to, to, to get it. So all I say is, yeah, I'll give you the money. But I've spent enough money on toys this year, I think. Anyway, yeah. What you always need one more. Oh, well, we don't need it. We always want one more. <laughs> and, and generally, and you know what? And look, Paul, look, it's let's not... not go down the need want path because <laughs> yeah. that's, that's a slippery slope. <laughs> but you got it all wrong. It's not one more. It's about four more. You know, I need a super chipmunk. <laughs> I need to have a good scale glider. Definitely need that. Um, what else? I need a glider tug. Jet, I need scale jet. A glider tug, a gl- an iMac model, a pattern model. <laughs> yeah, a jet tug model, right? <laughs> I don't need something different. You can have the electric one. I'm going to turn up with a turbine, and I don't mean turboprop. I mean a turbine. Who wants to have a crack? I'll take up on my jet. Um, it, so it has been done. It, so, well, no yeah. doubt someone's been crazy enough to do something like that. You know, when you think about it, but people are always looking. You know those people that always want to be different. So I built a glider tug. It's a pipe of cub, but I put a turbine engine in it on, a, on the top of it. <laughs> okay. Imagine that. Here's a challenge, all right? Here you go. Here's a challenge out to anybody who's listening. If anybody builds a pipe of cub with a turbine engine in it, I will send you a free copy back issue of the Flat Out RC magazine. There you go. That's a value uh, well, of... Well, I, I believe if you look at the photos from, uh, I think it's the Jets Over Monato um, event from last weekend uh, in South Australia, I believe there's a... Um, an ultra stick oh, with yes. a turbine mounted on it. The sticks, so. that's, but that's been done a number of times. And you know what was interesting? Was was the turbine underslung? It was, I think the turbine was, was underslung in this case. On yeah. the nose, which it was up yeah. the, right up at the unusual. nose. Yeah, because I've seen some people put like a pot on the top of an ultra stick and then um, uh, change the design of the nose. Um, but, um, yeah, I saw that, that photo on Facebook and I went, oh, my God, gee, people can think. Oh, you know, I'm amazed. Like when you when you said you built that turbine engine, you've done so many of them now. All I could think of is, you must be a very patient and methodical kind of person to work through the intricacies of doing that. Yeah, well, it, it, it comes from, it comes from the days of, of pre ARF. Basically, you know, a, a quick build kit used to be a fiberglass fuselage and foam core wings. Um, you know, so I, I guess growing up in that era, um, yeah, well prepped me for that sort of thing. Well, Paul, I commend you for the efforts that you've made in aero modelling, um, some that I will never be able to achieve ever in my lifetime. So I will admire from afar and just put that down to me being useless and you not. Um, but um, I'd like to just complain about you now getting this stupid scale glider thing into my head again. I might <laughs> ring up my friend and see if he'd do me a deal. But um, Thanks for joining me on the Flat Out RC podcast. Really appreciate it. Great story to tell. A few laughs along the way. I can't wait to see you at the next event, whenever that will be. Awesome, Andrew. It's been a pleasure. I really appreciate it. About to leave. Already packing. Come with me. I'm not.
not really asking We'll get away to a place where we don't know a big thank you to Paul Richardson for joining me on the Flat Out RC podcast. And I forgot to say those words. Another episode of the Flat Out RC podcast done and dusted. I've got a few sayings that I keep on repeating if you're a regular listener. I'll tell you what, speaking of regular listeners, had some abnormality in the listening numbers. I think I got hacked in the numbers because I don't think 1,300 people in Singapore listened to this podcast last week. But if they did... Thank you, but I doubt it. <laughs> but yeah, I went out and looked at the numbers and went, something's gone wrong here. They've, you know, they've quadrupled. And so anyway, we'll see what happens. There's something, something going on in the interweb world. Anyway, uh, thank you for joining me, no matter where, no matter where you are, because uh, I know we have a lot of people in the US. G'day from Australia. No matter where you're listening around the world, I really appreciate you spending your time to listen to this podcast. Uh, so look, as I said, the... Shepherd and Mammoth event is getting close, only a few weekends away, I think, now. Uh, so I hope anybody that's planning to go is in gear, models are clean, engines are tuned up. Looking forward to it. Now we've just got to cross our fingers and hope we get some good weather. No doubt the field will be in immaculate condition like the Velo Radio Flies Club always does. So looking forward to that. I'll have the camera gear there, so we'll capture some of the activities whilst we're there. So looking forward to that. Working on a guest for next week. I think it's going to be a good one, so stay tuned. So we'll be back next week. Talk to you then.